Good evening. Thank you all for coming. What a great crowd. This is wonderful. I'm sorry we didn't anticipate uh, and get out twice as many chairs as we started with. We started with 100, thinking that was good. Um, we really appreciate all of you turning out tonight. I am Marge Webster. I'm co-chair along with Bill Durland, who I've now lost in the crowd. Bill, where are you? With Bill Durland of the local chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union. I'm here to welcome you to tonight's presentation by the Honorable Dick Celeste, President of Colorado College. After his formal remarks, we'll open it up for discussion. I look forward to hearing your questions and ideas and comments. And when we do get to that part of the evening, I'm going to ask, please use the microphone that we have set up so that everyone in the room can hear, particularly with this large crowd. I think it'll be helpful to have everyone using the mic. As you came in the door this evening, I hope you signed in. And if you didn't, you'll have a chance to sign in on your way out. Uh, I hope you also picked up some of the literature that we have that uh, describes the ACLU and many of the important issues that we're involved with. For those of you who are not already members of the ACLU, we have also provided for your convenience uh, membership envelopes pre-addressed. You too can become a card-carrying member of the ACLU for as little as $20 a year. So we urge all of you to join in our important work defending the Bill of Rights and the Constitution of the United States. Now it's my pleasure to bring to the podium a longtime member of the ACLU and a founding member of this local chapter. He will introduce tonight's speaker. For a decade, Bill Hockman has been a driving force behind and the most public face of the ACLU in El Paso County. I'm sure he's familiar to most or perhaps all of you. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Bill Hockman. Thank you. It's my pleasure to present our distinguished speaker on the topic of human rights in the world. And the subject is vexatious and controversial. President Jimmy Carter once said that human rights should be the soul of U.S. foreign policy. And on the other hand, the so-called realist school has disparaged the place of rights in foreign policy. I particularly enjoy this remark that the arch-realist Henry Kissinger once made about people in the State Department, which he headed. These are his words. I read the briefing paper for this meeting. It was about Chile. And it was nothing but human rights. The State Department is made up of people who have a vocation for the ministry. Because there were not enough churches for them, they went into the Department of State. Well, what place should rights have in our policy, and which rights? What is the origin of rights? Which rights are national and particularistic, that is particularly American or Western, and which might be applicable to other countries? Or putting this another way, are some rights culture-bound and other, others universal and human? The national security strategy of the United States 
published in 2002, uses these words, I'm quoting, the United States must defend liberty and justice because these principles are right and true for all people everywhere. No nation owns these aspirations, and no nation is exempt from them. That's official United States policy. Now, other nations have other conceptions of rights, for example, with a greater emphasis on economic and social rights. Does our projection of rights onto the world represent a kind of moral imperialism? Do we have any right to criticize other nations for depriving their citizens of the rights we think are vitally important? Is there a conflict between national interest and our espousal of human rights in the world? Now, to discuss aspects of this tormenting question, we are privileged to have a speaker with broad and significant experience at home and beyond the Western world. President Dick Celeste has had a baptism of fire on faculty rights in the four and a half years he's been president of Colorado College. But before that, he functioned in what might be called the real world. He was governor of Ohio for eight years. President Carter appointed him director of the Peace Corps, one of the proudest of American institutions, in my view. And President Bill Clinton appointed him ambassador to India in 1997, and he served until 2001. Now, we've been slow to exploit his experiences in these vital roles, but we are doing so tonight. And I'm privileged to introduce Dick Celeste, president of Colorado College, speaking to us about human rights in the world, my way or the highway. Well, I've long been a fan of the ACLU uh, ever since my mentor, Chester Bowles, uh, told me the story of Eleanor Roosevelt's security clearance for her appointment to the United Nations, where she represented the United States after the death of her husband. Um, she, like everyone else, was obliged to fill out these long forms that were the basis for FBI uh, checks to make sure that you weren't uh, a real threat to the national security. And she complained to the person who would ask her to fill out this form. She said, there's not enough room. It says, what organizations have you belonged to and when? She said, there's not enough room uh, for me to put all of my organizations in. And he said, well, I, I can give you additional pages. She said, no, on second thought, I'll just list the subversive ones. <laughs> and it took several pages for her to do that. Uh, but as, as a, uh, an original uh, supporter of the ACLU, I think uh, Eleanor Roosevelt inspired many of us to uh, uh, think in fresh ways about the significance of human rights here, uh, civil rights here in the United States and around the world. Now, I need to offer a disclaimer at the beginning of this talk. I'm not going to be reading 
a learned paper replete with citations and a bibliography. I know that's going to disappoint all the students who were required to be here by their teachers. Uh, nor do I have a PowerPoint presentation to liven up my comments with nice illustrations or quotes from around the world. Uh, too many people in this room know that I've spent most of my life in the world of politics, where success often depends on being a mile wide and an inch deep, uh, but never admitting it publicly. <laughs> uh, now, this is, this is the truth about my comments tonight. I felt so obligated to Bill Hockman after he persuaded me that I should submit myself to public scrutiny on these issues. Uh, and having concocted a volatile title to this talk uh, that I should really think very systematically, and I spent two hours today at my computer. This kind of type, you see the handwriting on it, but I mean, it was really double-spaced in caps so that I could still read it. I got two paragraphs, and the phone rang, and I hit save, and then I did four more pages, and I closed it without saving it. And so there is a speech floating out there in virtual, virtual communication. And what I will do tonight is sort of approximate those thoughts, try to be somewhat coherent, but most of all, to provoke a really good discussion. I, I, I'm eager to answer your questions or to engage in conversation with you around what is, as Bill pointed out, an area of great importance and complexity. Um, when Bill Hockman asks you to do something, I have to say this, it, it, it's pretty hard to say no to him. And knowing of his uh, dedication to the ACLU and to the causes that the ACLU, ACLU stands for, I was eager to uh, say yes that I would be here. So I think of these these thoughts as kind of a meditation that begins with the conversation. I think, Bill, that inspired you to ask me to do this. Somehow or another, our, our talk had turned to my experience when I was governor of Ohio. Right at the end of my term of office, I commuted eight death penalty sentences. And, well, let me assure you that was not the response in Ohio at the time. <laughs> Um, as you might guess, this is, uh, this is uh, the year um, 1990, 1991. Uh, very, very strong feelings against, uh, in favor of the death penalty. And frankly, these commutations were not because these people were nice or they were wrongly convicted. These, by and large, these were people who had done very, very bad things. But it was my way of raising questions about the death penalty, and I felt I had an opportunity to do that and, therefore, an obligation to do it. What was interesting to me is that virtually all of the mail I received from Ohio and across the United States was brutal and blistering and negative. But I did receive a dozen or so positive letters congratulating me. And they came from France and Germany in Austria, in England. They came from people around the world who were watching an obscure governor in Ohio because of their concern about the death penalty. 
I think probably Amnesty International or someone like that, some organization like that had shared this information with them. And it struck me, you know, uh, we generally see the world through our own eyes, our own set of values. We think that the struggle and the death, pen death penalty is our struggle, if, if those of us who feel it should be changed, it's something that we see here, and we, we don't think of it in a larger context. Ambassador Indy and I get instructions one day in about 1998. Uh, there had been some violent acts, including one really ugly murder of an Australian missionary in Bihar. Violent acts by radical Hindus uh, uh, against Christian missionaries in India. And so I received an instruction to go in and make a representation to the government of India. You must protect Christians in India. Well, I think that that's a message that I could understand why our government would want to convey it, but I thought it should be not in bold letters and you know, lots of exclamation points, but in a quiet, thoughtful way. So I went to see the minister, the home minister, on a number of other things, and I said, can I share with you a concern that I have? He said, sure. I said, I'm, I'm concerned that uh, if these violent acts continue to get out of hand, there's going to be a reaction in, in the United States and in other countries about your country's willingness and ability to protect all of your citizens. I mean, it's, it's certainly part of your constitution to respect all religions. And I, I just want to say on behalf of my government that we support all efforts that you make to protect uh, your own Christian citizens. He said, well... Uh, you know that message doesn't have to be delivered. We're deeply concerned about our own citizens, and we, while I appreciate the fact that you're expressing your government's opinions, thank you enough. Uh, fair enough. I'd done what I was asked to do. About four months later, I was visited by the, the bishop of the Mar Thoma Christian Church from Kerala. And he came with four or five of his priests to see me, and I wasn't sure what the purpose of the call was. It turned out the purpose of the call was visas, because his church was growing so fast in our country that they needed to supply more preachers uh, for the Martuma churches across the United States. So we had a very interesting conversation about that. And then he turned to me and said, by the way, he said, can I offer you some advice? I said, what is that? He said, could you ask your government to stop speaking out on behalf of Indian Christians? And I said, why do you ask me to do that? And he said, because it plays into the hands of those who want to paint the Christian religion in India as a foreign religion. The truth is, my church has been here since 40 AD, far longer than there was any Christian church in North America. And he said, we can defend our uh, Catholics and our Christians more effectively, frankly, than you can. A representation, again, to me, of how much of a challenge it is to, to see the world in its fullness and its richness and its diversity and to understand that there are values that may be universal, how you express them and how you address them. It's vitally important to be able to, to, to see those values from the perspective of others. Uh, now, 
to the degree that I have any, that's, that's the end of my prepared speech. <laughs> to the degree that I have any training academically, it, it was as an historian and somewhat of an American historian. And I've always, I, I love the study of American history because we've always thought of ourselves as a very special place. And we've had a very, from our perspective, a very special and privileged history. And the rhetoric of uh, seeing us as a city upon the hill, a beacon of hope to the world, um, is both well-established, it goes back to our earliest days, and has been repeated by political leaders, uh, certainly most recently, very much the, uh, an underlying theme of Ronald Reagan's presidency. Um, and in many respects, we were, you know, we were a beacon to the world. People came here to escape religious persecution. Came here, people came here to escape political oppression. People came here um, to escape grinding poverty, like my grandparents, who brought my father as an infant from southern Italy. Um, and when I was in high school, which was back then, when I was because he's re he's trying to record this, so if I my battery died. <laughs> if I begin to crumble, it'll be like one of those. Uh, Is it working now? I can use this mic. I can just use this mic. Um, let me get back to my train of thought here. Frank's elastic grinding poverty. Uh, when I was in high school, thank you. When I was in high school, one of my favorite songs that the high school choir would sing was the song set to the words of Emma Lazarus's poem, Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor, Your Huddled Masses Yearning to Breathe Free. And in the 1950s, that was a powerful, powerful uh, song. My parents, for a year and a half, had a Latvian family, mother, father, two kids living in the basement of our relatively small, modest house on Arthur Avenue in Lakewood because they had come as displaced persons, DPs, uh, following the war and then the turbulence in Eastern Europe. And I remember vividly listening to, um, to, the, to the reports of the Hungarian uprising in 1956 which many of you will remember. And this moment of anticipation and then of this sort of crushing disappointment. And then, several years later, reading E. E. Cummings' extraordinary poem, I think it was called Thanksgiving 1956, which ended, So rah, 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 democracy, let's all be happy as hell and bury the Statue of Liberty because it begins to smell. Uh, we had set up... Uh, these idealistic Hungarian, young Hungarians in most cases, with hopes that were promoted over Radio Free Europe, uh, we had held out a vision that we deeply believed is our legacy for ourselves and something we wanted to share with others. And they had a set of expectations around that that we would be prepared to somehow act on those uh, words in a way that would help them, and we didn't. But um, there is a tradition that I think goes way back in our country uh, 
to proclaim a set of values for ourselves and for others, and more recently to try to promote those values actively. Now, in different ways. I mean, Jimmy Carter actually did believe uh, strongly that human rights should be the cornerstone of our foreign policy. And certainly since the Carter presidency, every year we put out a human rights report in which we grade countries around the world. We don't grade ourselves, by the way, by the same standards that we grade others. But it is interesting. And it's a, it's, let me tell you, it's, it's a delicate uh, exercise because the, the grading is done in Washington, not on the ground in, say, India or in Bangladesh or whatever. And all of a sudden, there you are in an embassy, and the, the report is released on a Friday. Well, it's usually not a Friday. Diplomats wish it were a Friday afternoon because then it would sort of get buried. But it's released in Washington, D.C., and the headlines are, you know, the United States gives India C minus or a B plus, whatever it is, in human rights based on this human rights report. And then very interesting conversations ensue in which uh, the government of India will say, well, let's take some of these uh, yardsticks that are being applied to India and can we ask you about the United States? Uh, well, no, we... This is, a, this is our effort to help you understand the human rights situation in your country. But this, this notion of you know, proclamation, we've done that, I think, throughout our history, that, that we stood for certain values, that these values were part of the universal aspirations of humankind, and that we wanted to offer that to all who came to our land, and that to some degree we wanted a way to uh, encourage that uh, globally. We had, during World War II, I mean, one of the big conflicts between Roosevelt and Churchill had to do with what happens to the, what happens to the colonies after the war. And the pressure we put on Churchill to offer the opportunity for independence to uh, British colonies was not always welcome. But there was an example, I think, of uh, our desire to, to promote the values that we felt strongly. Now, John Kennedy, during, during the Cold War, perhaps uh, understood, I think, even before he took office, but more increasingly in his presidency, the, that the Cold War wasn't simply about power relationships or military dispositions, but it was about ideas and the power of ideas to move people. Uh, in a period when it was just post-independence in Africa and uh, India and other parts of the world. And in many respects, the Peace Corps was, was a uh, creature of that, that sense that the Cold War was about ideas and values. And the way to convey our values wasn't simply to proclaim them or even to promote them in some sort of nation-to-nation -nation way, but rather to live them, to exemplify them in a person-to-person -person way. And so when the Peace Corps was established, there was a very real effort to insulate it from any, uh, any uh, interaction with other government agencies, particularly intelligence agencies, because from the, the, the propaganda against the Peace Corps, which was consistently put out by um, by Soviet propagandists was that the Peace Corps was a, a CIA um, cover. 
incidentally, if you're interested, I can tell you a little story about that, but I don't want to do that right now because it's a distraction. Um, <laughs> make a note. We can come back to this. The, so the Peace Corps was, was it, we, you know, the office was always separate from the embassy. The country director reported to Washington, uh, could sit in on country team meetings, but did not depend on the embassy for any of the things that supported the Peace Corps. And, and in, in fact, for better and sometimes for worse, volunteers were assigned, were highly, highly independent in their uh, conduct and their choice of how they express themselves and all those other things at a community level. The important thing was not to offend the host country. To what, whatever you did to try to do it in a context in which you were sensitive to the host culture. So I remember one very gifted uh, Peace Corps volunteer who was sent in to do a f uh, family planning program to work with women of a village in a village where the village elders were all men. And she very quickly realized that she could not go in and hold classes for the women uh, without uh, stimulating tremendous distrust and resistance by the the leaders of the village, these village elders who were male. So being uh, a creative young person, maybe even a CC alum, what she did was to invite the village elders, these men, to come to her sex education classes or her maternal and child health classes. She was going to teach them. And they would gather in a circle. And of course, once they gathered in a circle, the women would all come around behind them to listen in. So she addressed herself directly to the men of the village and, and thereby respected uh, their position, but she conveyed a message that was beneficial to the women of the village uh, with all of the adroitness, I think, and, and ingenuity that often characterized um, the, the efforts of Peace Corps volunteers. So Kennedy's notion was there are values that are important. Those values can be best expressed when you create a relationship with people, you build trust, and then you talk about them in, in, in ordinary discourse. So when they would ask about uh, your attitude to a government, Peace Corps volunteers would often freely be critical in a one-to-one -one context, talking to people about aspects of government that they didn't agree with. But they were... They were very committed to the fundamentals of their government and what was important about them, and they would express that. I remember uh, one of the most powerful exchanges uh, that I experienced when I was Peace Corps director occurred in Ghana. Uh, this would have been in 1979. I was visiting a Peace Corps volunteer from Chicago named Ann McCormick in her village, and I was invited uh, to have um, palm wine with uh, her host, who was the, was the elder of that village. His name was Ahmed Khan. And we had gone through a little sort of informal ceremony. And then he stood up and he began to speak to me as if he were addressing a room like this. I mean, he was talking to me, but it was as that there, it, I could almost feel that there was an audience. It was like he was trying to talk to a joint session of Congress, perhaps, or something like that. 
And his, his little speech interpreted for me went something like this. He said, I am an old man. He was in his mid-70s. I'm an old man. I have seen yesterday, and I have seen today. If you had told me yesterday that someone would come from the United States and live in my village, I would have told you that is not possible. But I've seen today, and I've seen this young woman come from the United States and come live in my village. If you told me yesterday that a young woman would come to my village and live in my home like a daughter to me and a sister to my sons and daughters, I would have said, that is not possible. But I've seen today, and I've seen this Anne woman you call Anne, who we call Fanti, come to live in my home like a daughter to me and a sister to my sons and daughters. I have seen yesterday, and I have seen today, and I know now, I mean, concept, that it's possible for us to all live as one human family. I know now it is possible for us to all live as one human family. Now, you know, Kennedy could have given 50 speeches. It would never have gotten to this village. And the speeches could have been overridden by a whole set of events as the Hungarian Revolution and its aftermath overrode hopes and aspirations. But the power of that individual presence and the relationships that were built around that, and the ability to explore in that context, what do we share, what do we have in common, what is different about us, is quite extraordinary. Um, now, sadly, <laughs> uh, I think things have changed, and the change has been recent. In... in uh, 19, no, 2001, I, I actually was serving as ambassador for this administration. That may come as a shock to you. Um, they had asked me, the Secretary of State and President had asked me to stay on for three or four months because they felt India was too important to have a, an extended vacancy. And so I found myself in the incongruous position of bringing the Indian foreign minister to come meet the new administration. And uh, I brought Jaswant Singh to meet with uh, Secretary Powell, Secretary Rumsfeld, and the National Security Advisor, Condoleezza Rice. And um, one of the, one of the, you know, this is a very, these are very scripted exercises. And part of the exercise was that we were going to be meeting Condoleezza Rice in the cabinet room, and the president would just drop in. You know, five minutes, shake hands, pat the foreign minister on the back, and that would be it. Well, the, the president uh, dropped in, shook hands, um, very pleasant, and then asked Jaswan Singh, have you ever seen the Oval Office? It's not in the script. And he said, no. Well, come with me. So the president took this, the foreign minister in the Oval Office. I, I knew my responsibility. My responsibility is to be there and know what goes on. And 
I grabbed my counterpart, the Indian ambassador, and we went in along with Condoleezza Rice, who was totally undone by this. We sat down in the Oval Office, and I won't give you the whole story because if I say much more, I will have... I may, I may be subject to certain penalties given the propensities of this government. Anyhow, <laughs> because I'm sure he's listening very carefully to what I have to say already. Uh, so we get into the Oval Office, and the, the, the president's here, and he has the, the, the foreign minister next to him. And, and you know, you remember West Wing. There, there, there are two chairs there, and then there are couches. <laughs> so I'm on one couch, and the foreign minister's on the other couch, and at the far end is Condoleezza Rice. And the president says, with, yeah, he's a very relaxed and congenial person. He says, look at Condi. She's really petrified because I don't have any talking points. And you can see her kind of going like this, right? And then they engaged in a very, uh, actually a very substantive conversation for about half an hour. But the most interesting point was sort of the beginning. Um, uh, the president sort of offered a, a paragraph of welcome, and then Jocelyn Singh's reciprocated and said, you know, Mr. President, it is a privilege for me to sit here with you. Um, I'm keenly aware that at no time in human history has a country enjoyed more power and influence than the United States enjoys today. Not the Roman Empire, uh, not the British Empire. I don't believe there's ever been a time when a nation exercised as much uh, dominance as the United States uh, in the cultural arena, in the economic arena, in the military arena, by any measure, the United States is simply uh, uh, far beyond what has been enjoyed by any country before. And with that, I think, comes an extraordinary responsibility. And the president's response was an interesting one. And he said, and extraordinary envy. And extraordinary envy. He said, you know, uh, there isn't anything we can, that we would talk about where there, where there aren't countries who, because they envy us, will resist what we say or do. What was interesting that the president was thinking in terms of envy I think Jocelyn was probably more thinking in terms of respect. But this was before 9-11. This is, this is, this is almost like a, two different moments in our nation's history. Um, and I would, what I want to submit to you is that the, that the impact of 9-11 has been far more devastating than the lives lost or the economic impact that occurred on that day and in the months that followed. Uh, the impact of 9-11 has been far uh, more profound than the war on terror as we talk about it in the press. I, my sense is that as a nation, before I get to the present, I want to talk about us as a nation. I think as a nation, as a people, our response was a kind of fear that we had never experienced before. That this act of, that had been unimagined and was brutal and evil uh, could happen, happen on our soil, happen in a, in a, in a way that staggered us. Um, 
aroused in us a fear that pervades our society today. And for a country that has thrived on openness and optimism, poses a, a huge challenge to us. It makes it very, very difficult for us to live up to, for us to sustain those values that we hold particularly dear. Fear of strangers. Uh, turning the Statue of Liberty on its head, in, in effect. I mean, the whole debate about immigration, but way beyond that. Um, a desire to kind of close ranks in our society, even close our society itself against both real and imagined threats. Uh, an inability to even find a vocabulary to talk about how do we parse the danger of a dirty nuclear weapon? Just to begin to talk about it, you immediately say we have to do whatever, we, whatever it takes to prevent that from happening. But could we calculate, if we, if we were to start to add up, what does it take to, to prevent, to be sure, 100% sure that that could never happen? Could we add up all of the things that we'd have to do to be 100% sure that that would never happen? And if we added all that up and came to a conclusion, then weighed the scales, would we say that adding all that up versus what might happen, how do we strike that balance? We are virtually unable to have that conversation as a society. We certainly, from a political standpoint, it would be virtually impossible to have that conversation today. So the, one of the things that's happened is in, in response to 9-11, we, we have, we have uh, pulled back from, a, from the ability to really talk about where are our values relevant to this question of how do we simply protect ourselves and our society. Now, the second thing that's happened is we're led at this very moment by someone who has um, nurtured the fear rather than sought to contain it, reverse it. I mean... To me, it is so striking to think of Franklin Roosevelt standing up at a time when, when probably as, it was as close to an analogy for very different reasons, but when people wondered whether the nation could survive as it was in the depths of a depression. And he said to the nation, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. It was true then. I believe it's true today. I believe that that's something that we really have to address So, let me go back to the sort of real world in which I work. Here we now live, post 9-11, in a period of warrantless wiretaps in Abu Ghraib, domestic spying in Guantanamo Bay. Um, not all of us for sure, and probably most of us in this room uh, do not feel that represents us or certainly doesn't represent us at our best. And yet, as a 
society as a polity, we have seemed ready to sacrifice many of our fundamental values uh, in order to uh, secure this country in some not well-defined way, but in, in order to increase our sense that we are securing ourselves. I'm going to put this question to you. If Europeans who cared about capital punishment noticed the actions of a, believe me, not very high-profile governor in the Midwest, what do you think Europeans who care about human rights make of Guantanamo Bay? And it's not just Europeans, I might say. What do you think Indians make of this? Or what do you think the Chinese make of this? What do you think folks in Latin America make of it? Um, the goodwill that this country enjoyed, that even the envy that the president identified in his own view uh, when he was in conversation with the Indian foreign minister, uh, and the huge outpouring of sympathy uh, that the world expressed in the days immediately following 9-11, five years ago, and then ask, where are we today? Not just where are we in terms of the domestic circumstance, but where are we in the eyes of a world that has historically looked to us for inspiration? historically looked to us as kind of a yardstick against which to measure others. Um, and the, the answer is striking. I mean, as I was, as I was <laughs> working on my computer today, fortunately I had made one set of notes which uh, I was typing in, so I actually have the real notes. And for those of you who follow this, BBC, BBC News reported today their world survey results. They do a world survey um, uh, annually to look at uh, how a variety of issues are looked at. But what was pertinent is the number, this is looking at 25 nations, including the United States. The number of those who said the United States was a positive influence in the world fell this past year in the, 19, or in the 18 nations that had been polled last year as well. In these countries, 29% said the United States had a positive influence. That was down from 36% last year and 40% two years ago. Um, across all 25 nations, 49% of the respondents said the United States played a mainly negative role. Even in the United States, 57% said we even in the United States, where 57% said we play a positive role, that was down six points from last year and 14 points from the year before. Um, the BBC asked a question about the deta detainees in, in Guantanamo. 67% of the people in these 25 nations uh, disapproved of uh, holding the detainees in Guantanamo. 50% of the people in the United States felt the same way. Well, this is 
useful data, but those of you who travel widely or who have good friends in parts of the world where you may have lived for some time or another, you know what it's like to go visit them now or to, to, to talk to them now. And they'll ask you, what is happening in your country? Um, now, that was, it was a difficult question to answer after the election in 2000, let me tell you. <laughs> it, it, you want to get a weird feeling? Your, your United States Information Agency has created an election return party to celebrate election results in the wonderful strength and dynamism of American democracy. And you have probably 40 Indian newspaper or news outlets who are gathered to get the returns. And all of a sudden you say, well, we can't tell you what's happening. No, we're sorry, the vote in Florida is so close. No, there are a lot of ballots that are being challenged in Florida. No, we aren't sure what. And a week after this thing, I go to a cocktail, diplomatic cocktail parties, and they said, what's happening in your country, you know? And then the interesting thing, the most interesting thing, is most of them concluded that there would be some kind of coup. <laughs> most of them concluded that the, that the rule of law wouldn't work. Now, we might argue that <laughs> it only worked a little bit in that Supreme Court. <laughs> But the fact was that we respected the rule of law and that there was an outcome. For, for most of them, and believe me, even for some very sophisticated uh, European representatives, they, they, they said, well, is this sort of the end for the United States? <laughs> but what, the, the, the election in 2000 wasn't the end. But what's happening now could be. What's happening now could be. And that's the challenge to us. So I wanna, I, I'm just going to conclude this, uh, this uh, talk that uh, I want to I provide a counterpoint to the notion of my way or the highway. And the counterpoint is another Peace Corps story about a woman named Helen de Robier. Some of you have heard me talk about her before. Helen was a volunteer who had graduated from Boston College where she majored in biology. Her hobby was gardening. So in its wisdom, the Peace Corps sent her to work in um, Senegal in a village out right on the edge of the Sahara with a, 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 a women's cooperative that was going to plant a garden that would allow them to grow something other than millet so they could have nutritious food in their village. And Helen had been in this village for about 18 months when I arrived to visit her. We had a delightful lunch, which she'd arranged with sort of the half dozen leaders of this woman's co-op in her, in her hut. And I didn't understand what they were saying, but they'd yak yak back and forth. Then she'd give me half of what they were saying. And it was very pleasant. We went out to then after lunch out about a kilometer or two from the village to see this garden. And it was, it was pretty impressive. I mean, they, they scraped up an old, the river bed where there was a little moisture left and they planted a garden. They were actually getting the first crop of vegetables coming up. And there was huge excitement on the part of these women. They were very, very proud of what they'd done and very, very uh, um, affectionate toward Helen and her role. So we're walking back toward the, toward the uh, uh, village, and I kind of took Helen aside, and I, I started talking to her, and I, I said, Helen, let me ask you, this is a question I hadn't asked any other Peace Corps volunteers. You'll know why when you hear it. I said, Helen, how do the women of this, of this village feel about having a blind Peace Corps volunteer in their midst? 
She said, they don't know I'm blind. Now, Helen is legally blind. I mean, she could not see the ground at her feet. In the garden, she would have to kneel down to, to see what was going on in the garden. And when her, when her mother wrote her, she showed me the letters from her mother, big, big letters, you know, and Helen would hold like this to read it. So I said, Helen, how can they not know you're blind? She said, I never told them I'm blind. But, you know, now that you mention it, she said, I'm teaching reading, I'm te- teaching English to two um, young people here in the village. They'll be the first uh, young people in the village who know how to read. And I've noticed that when they read, they hold the paper <laughs> against their nose like this. So we continue to walk, and I ask her the question that I ask every single Peace Corps volunteer. I'm, uh, what, what has your experience meant to you here? And she used words I'll never forget. She said, well, Dick, uh, being here has given me the gift of new eyes. She said, uh, if I had stayed in Boston, I would never have been able to know what the life of a woman in uh, an African village is like. It's given me the gift of new eyes to see the lives that these women lead in 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 a fresh way. And she said, it's given me the gift of new eyes to see my country differently. She said, I know now what I love about my country, and I know what I want to change about my country. And then she said, and it's given me the gift of new eyes to see myself in a different way, too. She said, if you had told me I would come out to this village and do the things that I've found myself doing, (laughs) I would have said, I can't do that. I'm not going to come. She said, but being here and doing these things, I've come to see myself in a different way. I think this challenge of how do we address global human rights is a challenge to our new eyes. As a a nation, as a society, how do we see ourselves? How How do we... get to a point where we can understand sufficiently uh, how others see us so that we understand what is of such value that we will not let anyone, including our government, take it away from us. Thank you. Okay, now for the better part, I'd like your questions or discussion, Let's, because that's really important. And yes, don't be shy. Right, a hand I see back here. It helps if you go to the microphone. Okay, she's coming, Bill. Uh, I was wondering, what are your thoughts on the immigration issue and what should be done about it? Do you have any strategy that might be better than the current administration? You know, every so often the administration comes close to getting it right, and I think they've probably been better on immigration than on most issues. 
uh, and it's case here where the president may be well served by having a Democratic Congress that will help move towards some um, fairer and more thoughtful and responsible way to address the immigration issue. Um, I, I don't have a well-worked-out plan, but I do think that, one, number one, we have to respect people who've come to this country and worked, uh, who've, who've uh, actually paid uh, taxes in many instances and supported the communities, and uh, I can't imagine we send them home or we, we tear apart families in that process. Uh, I'm not sure that we can ever uh, protect our borders with fences or border patrols to the extent that... Um, Others won't want to come here, and I think part of the challenge is this is a reason why you have to have a holistic policy. I mean, I think part of the challenge has to do with economic justice toward countries south of us and uh, trying to provide more opportunities for people where they live, uh, reducing the incentive to move here. But um, I think that it's um, it's a vexing problem. My, I believe as a nation we've benefited by being... Uh, uh, a total mixture of peoples and races and ethnicities and religions and experiences, and I think we're stronger because of it. It's interesting to me. I think one of the reasons why India, why there's a kinship between the United States and India, is there's a lot of diversity within India, in the in the same fashion, and they've constantly had inflows of people, and they've sort of absorbed them, and they've become stronger because of that over over time. And, it was the Mughals who dominated India for uh, hundreds of years, and it's the reason why there's still 130 million Muslims in India. It's the second largest Muslim nation in the world, although we think of it as a Hindu country. I think that there's a strength to this kind of openness and ability to sustain, um, but it's a, it's a challenge to strike the right balance, and I think that's going to be what hopefully in this new uh, necessarily bipartisan uh, government might uh, provide us with some leadership. I don't know if that satisfies you, but it's the best I can do right now. Yeah. Come on, this is not a CC audience. Go ahead. Can you come? They may want it for the podcast, too. So, well, you could repeat it, I suppose. I don't know how. You said you had a story about the Peace Corps. Oh. CIA. Peace Corps CIA. Okay, here's the story. Um, I'm going to give you the short version. The longer version takes about an hour, and I usually have to have some bourbon in front of me. So I'm sorry I didn't say that. Uh, but it goes like this. Stalin's daughter defected through the American embassy in New Delhi. Some of you may remember that. Her name was Svetlana. And I was there. This is March of 1967. And I was deeply involved in a lot of what went on. For the purpose of this story, what you need to know is when she came to our embassy and said, "Hi, I want to, I want to, uh, I want the protection of the United States government, and I'm Stalin's daughter," we didn't believe her. We actually thought it was a provocation, and we acted on that basis for 48 hours because there was part of what made her story so unbelievable is she said she was she had been in India for four months because she was the common law wife of a of an Indian expatriate living in Moscow who worked for the foreign language press and when he died she brought his ashes back to the Ganges, immersed the ashes and then didn't leave India. And she was living, she said, in the home of the deputy foreign minister of India, a man named Dinesh Singh. Well 
please. I mean, Stalin's daughter brings her husband's ashes back to India and lives in the home of the deputy foreign minister of India, and we don't know about it? I'm sorry. We have a vaunted CIA, right? So we assumed she wasn't who she said she was. Well, we turned out to be wrong, but we didn't know that for 48 hours. Uh, so that's one piece of the story. So fast forward two months later, one of the last things I'm doing before I left India to come back, this is probably late May, early June of, of uh, 67, we gave the annual party for Peace Corps volunteers in India, and there were probably 140 volunteers in the backyard of the ambassador's residence. And we had beer, and they were in the swimming pool, and they were chatting and everything. So I wander up to two guys who were sitting by the swimming pool, their feet in the swimming pool, and, and, and sucking on a beer. And he said, how are you? Where are you? And they introduced themselves and said they were working in a, in a poultry project in Uttar Pradesh. And I asked them how the project was going, and they gave me a story about how the project was going. And then one of them turned to me and says, whatever happened to Stalin's daughter? <laughs> I said, I was sort of playing dumb. I said, Stalin's daughter? Oh, every Saturday we'd sit with her and have a beer at her house, and she told us she was going to defect to the United States. Did she do it? <laughs> so that's how much communication there was between the Peace Corps and the CIA. It did not exist. It was, I, I was, I mean, it was one of the most stunning moments. Here are these guys, I mean, what did they know? There are two volunteers out there doing poultry project, right? They sit with this woman. She's Stalin's daughter. She gives them cold vodka or whatever it is on a Saturday, and they start talking, and she says, I'm going to defect. And what do they know about defections? It's not. So that's, I mean, uh, it's a good story, and it's real. You know, the best stories are, yeah. Yes. Can you, there's a mic here. Given, uh, given the state of our, our country right now and the fact that uh, uh, we really have no interest in, uh, in human rights within our country by the current government, how can we do anything to change things in any other country? That's the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is, uh, at what point in time do we in this room know that we've reached uh, a tipping point, a point where we we no longer have the opportunity to save democracy in this country or have an influence on another country. Let me uh, say the first, first part, you know, how can we do something overseas? I, I don't think we should. I think we, ha we have to begin at home. And I think that the most powerful thing that we can do for people around the world is to live up to our best values. Uh, it's when we fail to do that that we let people around the world down. And so, I mean, I, it, it's a little like why a Peace Corps volunteer is the most powerful expression of what we stand for. That if we, to, to not practice it at home and try to promote it overseas doesn't make any sense, and people are smart enough to get that. So I think our responsibility really is to address the issues here first and foremost. You know, shut down Guantanamo tomorrow. That's our responsibility. And the irony is, even our best allies, like the government of, in, 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 in the United Kingdom has said, close it, you know. Uh, it's not like we aren't hearing from good friends that this is an embarrassment for them, a burden they have to carry as our friends. So I think our, our responsibility is here at home, first and foremost. And that's only as we begin to address 
these matters uh, in our own context? Uh, can we hope to be able to be helpful to others who have uh, who, sh- who share aspirations with us, and uh, and maybe harbor some residual respect? Uh, toward us, and I think there are many who are in that position. They hope that better days are ahead for us. Now, how how do we know? Look, I'm I'm an optimist. I wouldn't have been 20 years in public life if I was not an optimist. Uh, and I tell you what, I'm more of an optimist today, working with young people at this college. Um, I I think that the election it was a sign that there is real life in our body politic. Uh, I think that there are going to be much more vigorous debates in Washington uh, in coming days than there have been over the last number of years. Um, I thought I thought the last line on the New York Times editorial was was uh, was absolutely right on the mark. I mean, it, the, it is quite clear that the one thing we want, we don't want is one party government. And let me just say, as as a as a former Democratic governor of Ohio, for eight, uh, you look at eight years that I was governor, the first two years I had Democrats in control of the House and the Senate, I was not as good a governor for those two years as for the next six years when I had Republicans in control of the Senate and Democrats in control of the House. And we got progressive things done by finding a common ground. So I think, to me, the most worrisome uh, aspect of what's happened politically is sort of the the the... This sort of the race to extremes rather than an effort to find a the common ground does not have to be a low ground. The common ground can be a high ground. That was what happened in the, in, in the best days of civil rights legislation in the United States. There were people like uh, the, the Republican senator from um, Maryland, Chuck Mathias, or a Republican congressman from Ohio named McCullough, people who were right there as leaders and sometimes way ahead of Democrats who were inhibited by Southern Democrats who didn't, didn't want to move forward. So I, I think the challenge now is to, to identify common ground that's high ground and try to move uh, the, the best in both parties toward that. Um, but we need to be clear. There are certain things that, 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 that ought to change uh, uh, and change quickly. And I think, you know, whether it's warrantless uh, eavesdropping or, or uh, maintaining this, uh, I don't want to call it a prison, it's not, it maintaining this go- uh, you know, gulag in Guantanamo is uh, these things should be changed. Hopefully they will. Yeah. There was a group of individuals on the planet who believed in the divine rights of kings, and there were people who served them. And uh, I mean, if, if we were a couple hundred years ago, four or five hundred years ago, you might be a representative of a monarchy. And I talking, talking about human rights right. in that context. Um, after the divine rights of kings disappeared as a real idea, they picked up another idea that had to do with law and the rule of law and constitutions. And it seems to me that it's not working. It's not working any better than the divine rights of kings was working and that it's a myth um, and that there has to be a new way of looking at it. 
to go to your example of the guy from Ghana, I mean, he didn't believe certain things were possible until they occurred. And it seems to me that if we continue to support the view that the American people seem to be supporting, we're doomed. Because they're going to use, and it's not a one party, I mean, it could be two parties, but it, all the indications are that they're going to use our beliefs in constitutional uh, democracy and rule of law against us to defeat us. And it seems to me that they're probably right that they can do that, and that what we have to give up is the belief that a piece of paper can protect us or that the state can protect us. Um, and I'm not talking about violence or anything like that. Um, but we, 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 we quit thinking about things like rights because we have these pieces of paper that we can look at, and we even forget to look at them. Um, but it, it strikes me that we're as lost as those people who um, believed in the divine rights of kings. Well, I guess I mean, we disagree, but I, I think that uh, uh, I guess my feeling is that the that, uh, law is imperfect. The rule of law is imperfect. It's not a perfect solution. And in human society, I'm not sure that we ever have a perfect solution or could contemplate one. Uh, I think that the tension is going to be between our concept of the rule of law and sovereignty uh, versus the larger notion of uh, an effort to arrive at some kind of um, international law which can constrain sovereign nations. And this is a, a big part of the debate around uh, the treatment of uh, uh, enemy uh, you know, people we consider as potential terrorists, uh, people who are hostile in, in whatever setting. Um, it, it is, uh, we've seen this debate, for example, when members of, uh, I think it was the dominant side of a Supreme Court decision a year or two ago actually cited foreign precedents or foreign law as part of the basis for their decision, and there were those who were offended that we might look beyond our own uh, immediate uh, borders, our own uh, legal precedent for something that would bind uh, us in this country. So I'd rather be at the point of debating is, is, is our rule of law sufficient or does it need to be somehow brought into conformity with or harmony with uh, some larger context, legal context, in which, to which all of us are subject. Um, and I think that's going to be, uh, I think that's going to be a very vigorous debate over the next 5, 10, 20 years. It may take a generation to resolve it. But every, you know, more and more of the issues we face are not issues that respect national boundaries. Um, I can imagine lawsuits between nations around environmental pollution. Uh, I can see conflicts around the movement of people when you have uh, pandemics. Who's, who's going to make the rules over who's allowed to move what and where and when, uh, uh, let alone the issues around uh, terrorism and things related to terrorism? So I, I guess I think we've made a step forward with the rule of law. It beats, beats the divine right of kings. Uh, 
Though I suspect there may be those in Washington who would like to go back to the divine right of kings. <laughs> Maybe you think they have. I don't know. Uh, and I, 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 think that, uh, I think that this is not the end of things because I do think the issue of, of national sovereignty is going to be a very tough issue as we go forward. First of all, I have to say that I am very much for human rights. I want you to know that I think that every person, every man and woman was born equal. And I worked in the 60s for civil rights for the blacks. But I have a little problem, and I would like you to talk towards, um, I'm wondering if we don't all, with our civil rights, we have a responsibility as human beings to respect each other. And giving amnesty to a murder, a cold-blooded murderer, I just have a little problem with that. I'm just wondering where we, where that person, I mean, at one point, at some point, don't people give up their rights of if they're killing other people? How can we, as a nation, have any order? So that was my question. About right, I, this is a wonderful question. Um, and I do believe, I do believe that uh, there is a responsibility that goes with uh, rights. Uh, and I think often we don't think enough about that. I, my view is when I exercised the, the power of commutation, I was trying to make a statement about us, not about the murderer. That that is, we are capable of mercy. This person wasn't. And as a society, we need to be bigger than those who uh, violate now in the in the course of uh, i didn 't pardon anyone. I commuted sentences to life or life without parole. I believe that these people that these folks who have done have committed heinous crimes need to be punished but i don 't believe it 's right. This is my own personal conviction. Uh, I hope more and more people come to share it i don 't believe that it 's right as a society to take that life in response, and I believe the more we do. Frankly, I believe the more we do, the more we cultivate an attitude about violence which is permissive. Um, and, and so I, 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 I want to say that it, it was not an effort to, to sort of act like this, uh, you know, this person who shot someone in a bar, this person who, who sexually molested a little girl and then killed her, that, that he, you know, even though he'd changed his life, and even though he'd become a model prisoner, that wasn't the reason why I felt I wanted to commute a sentence to life without parole. I picked him and three other men and four women because I wanted, first I wanted to say the way we, the way we um, convict people of capital crimes is in no way equitable. Let's just give an example. In the case in Ohio at that time, there were four women on death row. There were only 16 women on death row in the nation. So a quarter of all the women in the nation were on death row in Ohio. They, they, three of them came from one county, and three of the four were black women. This is in a state with 88 counties, and 11% of the population was African-American. So no one could argue that these, that these four women had been treated equally uh, in the courts. Now, in the, men, in the case of the men, there were 104 men in, in, on death row at that time. I, I commuted four sentences. 
60% uh, of the men on death row were African-American. 80% of the men on death row were, were either clearly retarded or were borderline retarded. Um, I think would, if we'd investigated, we probably would have found that about 95% of them had had insufficient or ineffective representation in the, in the, in the trial when they, when they were convicted. So I, what I was trying to express really was a value of society, the kind of society I, I, I want my state to be, and how I thought we should be acting in these matters, not so much a judgment about their, indiv their individual acts, which I found repugnant. And uh, one of the problems was I didn't take the time to really talk to the families of the victims about this. I think that's one reason why there was so much um, frustration and anger. Let's have a student ask a question. How do, you, how do you respond to those in Washington who would say that uh, human rights in terms of foreign affairs is a second-tier issue, that we should be more concerned about um, our national interests, is what they say? Um, how do you respond to that? Well, they have, you know, I guess I'm a little bit of a Carterite on this. I mean, I do think that our national... that. that where we turn our back on severe human rights violations, for sure, we put our national interest in jeopardy. Well, it's interesting to me to hear Bill Clinton say that one of his greatest regrets is that he didn't do something about what was happening in Rwanda in a timely way. Because it, 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 there are places where we can make a difference. There are, there are places where we can't. I mean, I, I frankly have serious questions about whether we can plant democracy someplace else. We can help countries nurture their aspirations for democracy, but it is extremely difficult. I, I, I just don't know. The best will in the world and the best circumstance in the world, it is extremely difficult to do. But to be guided, to have our judgment guided by a concern about human rights as we make geopolitical judgments, as we ask ourselves, where are we going to station troops? What, what, how do we protect friendly uh, countries? What, what is it that we expect from folks who we consider to be adversaries? What kind of lines do we draw that we try to communicate to them and enforce with them? Um, I, think that, I think that in all of that, we have to keep the, the notion of fundamental rights in our mind. This is why here we are. Think about the the... the Tightrope, we're tight, we're, we, a tightrope. I think it's not a tightrope. I think it's actually a, 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 a delusion. But the idea that we're going to walk this tightrope where we're promoting democracy in the Middle East, but we can't promote democracy with our friends in Saudi Arabia. We can't promote democracy with our friends in Egypt. We can't promote democracy with. I mean, please, how, how do you? This is how do you convey a message? So somehow or another, we have to find ways to articulate a standard and then understand that we may, we may not always be able to make that happen, but that's what we want, that we want to nurture and look for ways to, to, to uh, nurture it and, and, and without, a, without imagining that we can impose it or we can require it or that we can, we can do that. So I, I do think it's a, I, I make it a, one of my cardinal principles of foreign policy. Before you spoke about your friends telling you they suspected a junta almost, a coup, you used the word coup. 
Um, I, I, from listening to you speak about uh, George Bush, George W. Bush, um, it sounds like you give him more credit than I do. Um, I, I really wonder about him greatly. And we talked about the, 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 the um, kings. And, you know, he's our commander-in-chief. And it seems we're in a point where we are very stuck. I, I was down in Buenos Aires on a visit in Argentina. And it's really amazing. You look around, and it's just like here. It's just like us. And they had some real bad stuff go down there. And you, I asked people, I said, how did this happen? And they say, we don't know. And I don't want to find ourselves in that position. And I feel that reality inside you, that you don't give it, you, you don't throw it out. It's not Star Wars. It's, there's a sense of reality to what I'm saying. Well, I, now, let me say, and I'll choose my words carefully here because this is a serious question. Uh, and I want to give it a, a, a serious answer. I, I guess I have – I don't believe that anything is impossible in human events, okay? I, I think that as soon as, as soon as you say – I used to say as a politician, if I said cows can't fly, I'd be hit by cow patty <laughs> coming down to tell me that it might happen. Um, and, I, you know, I don't imagine that we're immune from – internally from unexpected uh, outcomes, but I, I, having spent 20 years in public life, I have a huge level of confidence in ordinary people, and I really believe that, that you know. I mean, look, today the vast majority of Americans want a different policy from the president, from the one that they're getting from the president on Iraq. I mean, this is just fundamental, and every day it's more so. That wasn't the case three years ago, um, and that. That reality is communicated to people who we've elected in this last round in Congress and the Senate, and I think you're going to see it reflected in the way in votes in which votes are cast on the issue of um, the surge in in uh, in, uh, in, Iraq, in Iraq. You're going to see it in the willingness of more and more people to stand up and say before the fact, no, 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 to going into Iran, which I I, I believe there are people actively considering it right now in Washington, and we've got to make sure that that doesn't happen. So, I, you know, um, I, I, I guess my, my – if your question is, could I imagine a circumstance in which something like that might happen in the United States, I, I'd say yes, I could probably imagine it, and it's precisely fear that would drive us into a, a corner where an Orwellian, totally Orwellian outcome would occur. We've had a sufficient taste of Orwellianism, I think, over the last 15 months or so, that people are saying no, and that that's going to be reflected in the way in which our political system works. Um, but let me say, it's not just about folks in Washington. I mean, everybody here who has this concern needs to be sharing it with folks. Uh, and and saying we support you as you as you as you raise tough issues, whether it's Ken Salazar or frankly Wayne Allard. I mean, everyone has to know this is something that we're that, that we care about deeply, and we're going to express ourselves. Yeah. There's somebody and a woman in the back, Bill. After that, there's, there's a woman in the back after that. Who, yeah, but she wants to, she wants to be heard. <laughs> 
Um, thanks for, for giving me a chance to, um, and all of, us, all of us a chance to, to hear your thoughts. Um, I, I, I reacted when you, and I, as I normally do, especially after the, after the results of this last election, how a lot of people are seeing well, that there's a need to meet in the center. And, um, and I guess for me, I, I'm not, for, um, I consider myself perhaps an extremist on, on the left. Uh, it being being for peace and being anti-war, but uh, I don't think that's an extreme position, well, by the well, way. Okay, no. I mean that's my own view. That, well, that's that's actually addresses the question that I have it, on the issue of human rights. How how is any position on human rights extreme to in favor of it? How how is that? How is it? How can you not be extreme in, to be in favor of human rights? Well, I think that we. I think that. To me, I guess uh, it becomes it becomes extreme when I insist on um, not simply appealing to you around what I understand to be a shared human right, but somehow insisting that you reach my conclusion because I can imagine that on almost any matter, for example, let me try to think of something that, well, I'm going to give something that may seem trivial, okay, I, and I don't mean to use it in a trivial way, but it's, try, it's the first thing that comes to my mind to illustrate this. When I, came, when I arrived in India the first time in 1963, I met a young woman who was about my age, I knew her two older sisters, and we became very good friends in the first couple of months, and all of a sudden she announced to me one day that she was going to get married. And I said, how are you going to get married? You haven't been dating. And she said, well, I, I realize my father's getting old and I don't want him to wonder about whether I'm taking care of. So I decided it was time to get married and they found a husband for me. I said, how can you let your parents choose a husband for you? You, you graduated from university in India. You've done a master's degree at the University of Michigan. You're a school teacher. You have a wonderful, wonderful preschool. I mean, you know, I, I could not comprehend that she'd give up this freedom and turn it over to her parents. And she said, you know, Dick, it's interesting. Um, I, I, I certainly understand what you're saying, but the truth of the matter is my parents have been married for 40 years. They know far more about marriage than I ever know. And they love me deeply, and they never knowingly make a bad choice for me. So I have to believe that they'll make a better choice for me about a marriage partner than I would ever make. Okay? Now, <laughs> And I'm happy to report they're still married. I visited them last November, and they're, they're great. But I, it, it stunned me because it was so fundamentally different from just the way I was raised in the rest. So I, I, I mean, I believe there are – I don't want to say that freedom to choose your spouse is a fundamental right, a human right, um, although I think freedom to walk away from one is probably a fundamental human right, <laughs> which we're exercising more often these days. Uh, it just, I guess the, to me the boundary is I, I think we should be vigorous and vigilant in our affirmation of our rights in our effort to try to institutionalize those and nurture them here. As we move beyond here, we need to listen carefully to others' perceptions because uh, ultimately we may learn something in the process that helps us enrich our understanding of our rights. So I, 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 you know, I don't know whether that's an answer, but that's what, how I struggle with the question you raised.
Okay. No, I'm, listen, what the heck? I may ask you to go out and get a jacket. This Daniels. is Kokiko. <laughs> this is Kokiko Mez, who just talked her way into my class as an overload. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> given that you believe that we ought to address issues of human rights in our country as a primary focus, do you believe that we have any obligation, whether it be political or moral, to intervene in situations in which human rights are being violated in other countries and other situations? What sort of obligations do we have if we are to focus first and foremost in our country? I think that that's a, the, the issue for me is uh, our ability to... to uh, Act effectively. As I think there, there are two ways in which I see this. I mean, I have an enormous respect for people who decide to put their own um, person at risk to try to protect uh, human rights in other countries, to try to um, stand in solidarity with those whose rights are threatened in other countries, to bear witness in circumstances where people are being deprived of rights um, but as a, as a nation, one of the challenges is there's a big difference between how we, how we can act effectively as an individual and do something which is moral and valuable. It may not ultimately change things. We have to ask the question as a government, as we act, are we going to, in fact, enhance the likelihood of a positive outcome in dealing with this problem of human rights, or are we going to complicate it? Are we going to make it worse? Why is it that today over 60% of these people that uh, BBC interviewed felt that the presence of U.S. military force in the Middle East actually uh, created more uh, problems than it, than it uh, solved? An effort to try you know, whether wisely or not, whether carefully thought out or not, whatever, to try to, you know, if you take the president at his most idealistic, and there is that aspect about him, a real belief that somehow we could, we could create a circumstance in which democracy would grow in this country that had only known, really, uh, the hand of a dictator, um, well, I believe that that's an unreal expectation. So that's my concern, that we, to act morally to do that is not sufficient if, we're, if, in fact, we're going to make matters worse. I think individuals, there are a lot of things that individuals can do. Uh, one of the, I had a long conversation with a man who succeeded me by a number of years as Peace Corps director named Mark Guerin. The idea was to create a, a sort of graduate Peace Corps in which we would ask mature folks who'd been Peace Corps volunteers much earlier, if they were willing to, f to become a true peace force who would go in unarmed into areas of civil conflict and try to somehow create a buffer and negotiate peace. Uh, a role that some people, I think, including Hubert Humphrey, may have imagined when he first articulated the notion of Peace Corps, but it's extremely difficult to do. Um, and there's been considerable discussion, and I think there are a number of former volunteers who would be willing to be part of that very high-risk operation, but where the idea would be that you would go in and 
creative force. Um, one of the really interesting debates going on right now is, you know, how does the UN, UN peacekeeping is an enormously important function. It gets very little notice here in the United States, but there are, I don't know, several dozen places around the world where there are U.S. peacekeeping forces at work as we gather and discuss this. That's an effort to, be, to, to in an efficacious way, address um, uh, human safety first and survival in many cases, uh, prevent genocide, uh, protect uh, women from rape and assault, a variety of other things. They're, they're good. They need to get better. And there may be other ways to expand that capability because short of terrorist acts, the other most likely um, challenge to global security are these outbreaks of civil unrest that happen around the world. So I think it's very hard, and it's harder today for the United States, partly because as we reduce the respect level around the world, our ability to kind of find a constructive way to intervene is, is, is uh, handicapped. Uh, but there are other resources, and I'd say both individual acts that can be undertaken that are, that are constructive and real, sometimes high risk, uh, have, but have some hope of being helpful. And then uh, other institutional ways, and certainly international organizations and NGOs are, are two valuable ways to go in that. Your, your point's well taken about the culture of violence and fear and so forth. I had an interesting conversation with an Air Force general retired uh, last week, and out of that he's convinced me I'm, I'm going to go to Washington here in about 10 days to represent this district for the uh, reintroducing the legislation for the Department of Peace, a cabinet-level position they're trying to introduce. Uh, yep. yeah. And, uh, and furthermore, furthermore, he's actually interested in the aspect of a peace academy. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to talk to people at the Air Force Academy about maybe, you know, finding some place for something to start with there instead of waiting for legislation. Right. The two-part question I have for you is, one, being a, you know, former Peace Corps director, what do you think of this concept? Uh, I know it's going to take, a, you know, a lot of uh, challenging uh, evolution through government with this transpartisan, you know, neither left nor right but forward kind of attitude right. that might evolve. But uh, he seemed to think this, this general was very ashamed that we had gone to war in his lifetime, the first time ever in a preemptive, you know, right. strike. And I think not only in the liberal areas but in conservative grants. I went to the Naval Academy and I've got parents and people right. who were military people who a lot of people don't realize, and my liberal friends, that military people are some of the most idealistic people in the world. Yeah. You can't get much more idealistic than willing to lay your life down for your yeah. country. And uh, I That's think true. the time is now to do that. And I'm curious to see if you have any advice on how, when I go talk to these congressmen and senators, what I can say from someone like yourself, a Peace Corps director. If, I, I think this is a uh, valuable effort. Um, let me say, I would, I would say that a peace academy could be more valuable than a Department of Peace. And that's partly, I have to explain my bias. As a, as a former governor, I'm not sure the United, that, that the federal government can get anything right. I mean, as somebody who's been in the military, you must have some of the same concerns because it's always, it's a challenge. I mean, you know, you get to Washington and you figure, hmm, we understand better than anybody else. Um, and, and 
there's a sense. Well, one of the, the one of the questions is why isn't the State Department the Department of Peace? You know, I mean that that could be its mandate. Um, but I think the notion of a peace. I'd start with the notion of a peace academy. How do you train and equip uh, folks in a variety of situations where what you're trying to do is is create uh, the conditions for a peace and and train people create institutions that will support that in a variety of unstable or even uh, fiercely conflicted situations. And what's interesting is that kind of academy might uh, provide supplemental training to folks who are in the military or folks who are in the diplomatic corps or folks who are going out to work for USAID or provide training for people who are going to work for NGOs in areas where there are hostilities going on. So I could, I, if, I guess my one recommendation would be Department of Peace, Dennis Kucinich, I know my, my former congressman when I lived in Cleveland, will support it and there will be some others, but I'll bet you could make more headway and actually make a bigger impact if you started with the department, with the notion of a peace academy. That would be my view. This is Elizabeth Wright Ingram, famous architect and a dear friend of mine. Uh, <clears throat> Dr. Celeste, uh, everything you've said is just wonderful, splendid. The problem that I think many of us are facing, and uh, I personally feel this, is that I don't understand, after vast reading and travel, what in hell they're thinking about in Washington under <laughs> President Bush. I mean, I don't know the scenario or the agenda. I just picked up a book the other day called Resource Wars. I think it was by Paul Kennedy. Um, and his whole thesis, I don't know whether you've read him or not, is that the agenda is a subversive agenda by all of the people involved, Rice, Rumsfeld, Bush, to keep the spigots of the world, not the actual development of oil, but oil distribution, oil and gas distribution, keep that under the power of the United States. Talk about divine right of kings. I mean, uh, where did we get this idea, uh, if that is the idea? and that we are squeezing Iran. We have control of the spigots in all of the countries surrounding Iran. Uh, Turkey may be a wild card, but he, he goes through it all the way with Korea, with India, Pakistan, the whole uh, business with, with uh, Pakistan. And it's an extraordinary, is it, is it a conspiracy theory? Is it just some dumb thing coming off the shelf somewhere. What, what is it all about? I mean, what are we trying to do? Well, let me say first, I haven't read the book, so I, it's not fair for me to try to really comment on that directly. I, I, there's no question in my mind that uh, for, for many, many years, uh, a, a very important concern of our foreign policy in the Middle East and other parts of the world has been access to uh, petroleum products. I mean, it's an essential for our, for our uh, national well-being, and we haven't been able to break what the president has described as an addiction. Um, but I, I, 
if, if this is a calculated, calculated effort to assure uninterrupted supply for our government, it's sure a cockeyed effort uh, because I think what we've done is to put relationships at greater risk, create greater instability. Uh, we, uh, Iraq, this conflict in Iraq has provided uh, a kind of training. I'm talking about a peace academy. It's, it's provided a terrorism academy. And you pay, if you, you know, we don't get many reports in the papers, but virtually every day a pipeline is being bombed in, in Iraq. Uh, there's efforts to disrupt the petroleum lines there. One of these days, a handful of those folks who've practiced for a year bombing pipelines in Iraq will try to bring that skill to Houston or Galveston or someplace like that. So, I, I mean, I, you know, if that is the goal, then I, I think that it's been a really ham-handed effort to pursue it. Um, and... Uh, I have my own theories. They're not quite conspiracy theories, so they have something to do with Freud and father-son relationships and things like that. I, I, I won't go there. I just won't go there, though. It's the father of seven. I don't want to get started because it will come back to haunt me down the line. I think this is the last question. Another one of my students. Um, in India, I imagine you encountered... Muslims who were probably no fans of our Middle East policy even well before Iraq. And what I thought of when you were talking about the election party was do they you know, have any awareness of how American party politics works and do they think that our Middle East policy has been better or worse or will get better depending on which party is in power. I'm trying to knit together the sort of original statement and then the question. I, I think that in, in India, there, at least among the sort of policymakers and the civic leadership and the young educated Indians, there's a fairly... Um, high degree of knowledge about the United States. I mean, you, you know, there are two million Americans of Indian origin today. They all have families back in India, or virtually all have families back in India. And we have probably uh, 70 or 80,000 Indians coming every year now to study in the United States. So over the last 20 years, there's been one of, one of the things that has led to a, a much closer relationship between our two countries has been this sort of, um, I call it human bridge back and forth between the United States and India that has been quite real. Precisely that knowledge is what caused them to be so surprised and dismayed by an indecisive election, uncertainty about the outcome. Now, do they view uh, – it's hard for Indians to understand the difference between political parties in the United States because parties operate differently in India. Uh, your membership can be taken away from you in India. The, the, your ability to declare yourself a candidate for a party doesn't depend on you just saying, I, okay, I'm a, 
I'm a Democrat because I voted in the last election as a Democrat. You, you can only be, be a member of the BJP party or the Congress party or the rest if the party gives you the opportunity to run. So the notion of party discipline, in fact, there's a, there's a provision in law that will, that, that prevents you from crossing the aisle just to change the, the relationship between the, the powers. Uh, you have to sit out for a period of time. So that what happens when uh, uh, a Republican uh, senator becomes a Democrat and tips the scale would, couldn't happen in that fashion in, in uh, the Indian parliament. So uh, the Indians have an understanding of our political process overall, don't quite get how party functions. And so for them to say, there's a Middle East po policy that is Republican and a Middle East policy is Democrat when it's hard for them to see anything but some blurs between Democrats and Republicans. So I think that's my best answer. Now, will you join in me in thanking the person I address as Mr. President? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you.